Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're in the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 2 for our last sermon in the series that we have entitled, But First, A Study of the Priorities of Christ. And so as followers of Jesus, it has been important for us to see the priorities that Jesus has and the things that he thinks are important. Because as people who follow Jesus, we want to have those same priorities, and we want to view the world the way that he does. And so today, we will hear Jesus say, of all the things that he's talked about, and of all the things that he calls us to in his word, but first, we must have a relationship. But first... A relationship. We'll hear it as we read the first five verses of Revelation chapter 2 to give you a little background. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gives letters to the Apostle John to give to seven different churches. And if you read these letters, Jesus will have John deliver these letters and they tell the churches, Jesus says to them, hey, here are the things you're doing. That I, I think is going really well. And here are the things that you're doing that are kind of a, a problem. And here are some things you can do to, to fix your problems. So there's kind of an audit of Christ's churches going on here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And if you think about that, that is valuable information for us. As people who are in the church, we all have ideas about what we think the church ought to be. But even though Ephesians 2 wasn't written directly to us at Redeemer Church of the Shoals in Florence, Alabama, we get to overhear Jesus saying what he thinks is good about a church so that we can pursue those things. And we get to overhear Jesus say what he thinks is, is not good in his church so that we can avoid those things. And we get to hear what Jesus says a church can do to fix the problems that it has. So this is valuable information for us as people who are in a church. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you've had a bad experience with the church. And you don't really think too much about what the church should be. Well, I want you to know that here in the text, Jesus is so honest. Because with every one of these churches, Jesus points out that sometimes the church is not all it is supposed to be. And so I want to invite you to listen now to the words of the risen Christ. If you think about church and you want church to be a sort of way, will you listen to what Jesus says the church should be? And if you've had a bad experience and you're skeptical of the church, will you listen as Jesus is honest about the shortcomings of the church? And we hear the words of the risen Christ in Revelation chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 5. Hear now God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. 
that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Let's pause now for just a moment and pray and ask God to give us understanding of these words that he has preserved for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to overhear what Jesus thinks about the church. I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, that you would help us to hear the, the praise that you have for your church, that you would help us to hear the, the problems that you have with your church, and that we would hear your plan for your church. Please come. And show us these things from your word now. I pray that you'd be willing to speak to us and mold us into the people that you would have us to be and that you'd be willing to do so even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. Lord, it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. To help us hear Jesus accurately and to understand what he's saying about this church, it helps to know a little bit about this city of Ephesus and this particular church to which Jesus is speaking here. So let me talk about that for just a moment. A little bit of background. We tend to think, I don't know if you're anything like me, I think, well, gosh, this was written 2,000 years ago, so this must be this little podunk city and the people just live in huts and they don't have electricity or the internet or any of the things that we have today. But you need to know, that Ephesus was a thriving metropolis. The city's largely built out of marble, the whole city, uh, with these huge stones. There were 225,000 people who lived in Ephesus at the time this letter was written. And Ephesus was a business center. You see, there was a lot of trade that went on, and Ephesus was on this trade route between Rome to the west and Asia to the east. And so there were a lot of money and resources that were there in and would pass through Ephesus. There were banks with huge reserves. There were rich people with vast resources. A lot of money and merchandise moved through the city of Ephesus. Then, not just was it a business center, but it was a cultural center. They had an amphitheater that would seat 24,000 people. We don't have a theater that big here in Florence, Alabama in 2021. And these folks had a 24,000 seat amphitheater that still stands to this day, 2,000 years later. You can go and see it. Ephesus is a city in Turkey, and this amphitheater still exists. That's not even one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but they had one here in Ephesus. That was the temple to the goddess Artemis. It was the size of two football fields that had a hundred marble columns that were each 55 feet high. So this was a cultural center. And this church that was in Ephesus was an incredible church. Think about this church. Think about the, the pedigree. If you were looking for a church, and if this is what the church had to say, they said, well, we were founded, the, 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 the planting pastor was the Apostle Paul. 
Paul spent two and a half years in Ephesus, longer than we have a record of him spending time anywhere else, perhaps because he saw how strategic this city was and how important it would be to have an established church in this place where their first pastor was the Apostle Paul. Remember, he was there with Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos and all these folks. And so when Paul leaves, their second pastor is Paul's right-hand man, Timothy. He leaves Timothy in Ephesus. And when Paul writes the books of those letters to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he's writing to Timothy while he is a pastor of this church in Ephesus. The third pastor of this church, after, I mean, where are you going to go from there, right? The Apostle John, Jesus' best friend while he's on the earth. Jesus' BFF is the third pastor of this church. And not only that, do you know who he brought with him when he came to pastor the church in Ephesus? Maybe you remember the story. Jesus is on the cross, and he speaks to his friend John, and he says, Son, behold thy mother. Mother, behold your son. He asked John to take care of his mother, Mary, as Jesus was dying, was going to ascend into heaven. So when the apostle John comes to pastor the church in Ephesus, he brings Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him. She ultimately dies there in Ephesus. Now, look, let me just stop right there. Can you imagine the Christmas Eve service at the church in Ephesus? Like maybe they've got the nativity scene set up. You know, the kids come and they do the thing. And it's like, did we get it right? Is this the way it was? And the Apostle John said, go ask that lady sitting right over there. Because she was there. She saw it. She lived it. That's the, the legacy that this church had here in Ephesus. Those are the leaders that God had sent to them. And so it's not a great surprise that, number one, first point of the sermon, it's no surprise the praise that Jesus had for this church in Ephesus. Let's look at that. The praise Jesus has for this church in Ephesus. If you're a note taker, my little A sub point here is that Jesus praises the church's hard work. Jesus praises the church's hard work. You see it there in verse 2, right? Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Think about that. You're working hard in the church. You're doing all the things to help, help the church run. And Jesus says... I know about the hard work you're doing. In fact, the whole image here, this thing about the words of him who holds the seven stars and who walks, if you read the verses at the end of Revelation 1, you know it's a reference to Jesus and the lampstands of the churches. And so Jesus is among his church. That is what a church is. It is a group of Jesus people in a Jesus place, a place where Jesus is and walks among his people. That's what a church is. And Jesus is saying to this church, I see your hard work. That's important for us to hear. Because we work really hard in the church sometimes, don't we? We can work really hard in this place. And to hear Jesus say, I, I, I see the work that you do, and I appreciate it. Jesus commends folks for their hard work. That's an important thing to hear. 
to know that Jesus knows. And that he commends this work. You see, this church was not just a, a church full of consumers looking for what the church could do for them. They did the hard work that it takes to do church well. And Jesus notices and appreciates that. I wonder, are we willing to do the hard work it takes to do church well? As I meet with people who are looking for a church, many times one of the first questions I get is, what can your church do for me? And let me just say that is an appropriate question. You should ask that question if you're checking out a church. That's an important information for you to know. But I must tell you, very rarely does anybody go on to ask me the question, what can I do to serve at your church? We just don't tend to think that way in this culture. We tend to be a culture of consumers, and I will come to this church if I feel like they got the right stuff for me. But if you don't have what I want, then guess what? There's a church right next door, and I can go there, and maybe they'll have what I want. You probably drove past 15 churches on your way to this one this morning. And because of the culture we live in, we can develop a very a consumeristic mentality about what the church provides for us. I pay my tithe, you give me the programs that I want. Jesus commends hard work in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that God has given you, the saints of God, gifts and abilities, but those gifts are not for you. They're for the building up of the church. That that's what he's given you gifts for. And I am so pleased right now. There are more opportunities for service at Redeemer Church. And there are more people who are doing significant work here than we've ever had before. I think that's true. From the folks at the front, greeters, security people, people making coffee, new people are involved in worship. AV, all the things that it takes. Kids sign in, children's worship. There are so many opportunities to be involved, and we have so many people who are doing the hard work that it takes to do church well. Know that Jesus sees the work that you do, and he commends you for those things. In fact, we've entered a season here at Redeemer Church where it's very important to us as a leadership. We're really calling people. We're saying, look, we want you to be poured into and so we're asking every member of our church that you would find at least one time a week that you are poured into, whether that's your community group on Sunday nights, maybe you're in the discipleship group, whether that's Tuesday morning women's study or Wednesday night men or women's studies, there are a lot of opportunities for you to get poured into. We want everybody to be poured into at least once a week. But we're asking every member to also pour out at least once a week to do the hard work that it takes to make the church happen and to make the church go. If you're a member of this church, you've taken a vow to support the church and its worship and work. And you may wonder, well, what are these opportunities that we have to get involved? Let me just mention a few. And, and if I call your name, just kind of raise your hand, tip your cap or whatever. We've got a new children's minister. We're building a children's ministry team. If you're interested in ministry to kids, you can get involved. Katie Cummins is right back here beside where the kid there. She is right here. She's in the stripes there. Talk to her about children's ministry, youth ministry. If you care about youth and that's something, that's a place that you would really like to pour out 
After Daddy is really content that if I saw Abby, she's right there in the road behind Katie. That's convenient. I appreciate your being willing to do that. Connecting the pew pads that are here, collating that information, giving away gifts, helping people who visit here feel welcome, and acknowledging that they were our guests and following up to see what we can do for them. That's the Connect team. Adam Cummins has really been heading up. There he is on the front. Everybody's been right back there. That's been helpful. Prayer ministry. You've heard us say, hey, if you want somebody to pray with you immediately after our service, we have folks who are standing by and willing to do that. Susan Pilgrim has really helped develop our prayer ministry. We are developing that team. And if that's something that you're interested in, if you want to pray for folks, Susan can help you with that. Missions ministry team. I'm going to say Mark and Becky Williams right here. We're really trying to help folks be aware of what missionaries we support and to keep those folks before our congregation. So if you're interested in overseas missions and local missions, see Mark and Becky Williams. Worship ministry team. If you plan, I had somebody ask me today, do we have anybody who plays trombone? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> They're like, well, I really want a brass. Just said, I wanted to have a brass quartet for one of these Christmas songs. I was like, listen, if you find somebody to play, I'll find you a trombone, okay? But we need people. If you play instruments, let Josh or Lee know about that. Small groups, Jeremy Terry. We're always looking for people to lead small groups, to host a small group in your home. There are so many opportunities to get involved. And Jesus calls the people in his church that make up the church to do the hard work that it takes to do church well. The second thing, Jesus praises the church's endurance. You see it there in verses 2 and 3, right? He says, I see your works. Your translation may say your hard work, your toil. And then he says, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested them. And in verse 3, he says, again, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. Jesus praises this church for its endurance. You see, Ephesus was not an easy place to do church. Paul, their first pastor, right? I'm sure they were proud to have him. You know why he left? Because people started becoming Christians, and they stopped buying idols to Artemis, this goddess. And all the people who made the idols got mad because they weren't making as much money. And they started a riot. And Paul wanted to go in and speak to it. And they said, no, Paul, you can't go in. You'll be torn apart. And so Paul, the first pastor, ends up leaving because so many people were becoming Christians. Folks were mad that they weren't buying this. Video. That's why the first pastor left. He leaves his right-hand man, Timothy. Now, guess what happened to Timothy? He's killed. He's preaching the gospel. Church history tells us that the folks just grabbed him and they drug him through the streets and beat him and then stoned him to death. I would think it'd probably be hard to get another <coughs> pastor after that. If that's what happened to verse 2, I'm thinking you're not getting the Apostle John as your next pastor. But the Apostle John agrees to come, and guess what? This book of Revelation is written to John, their third pastor, who's been sent up into exile on the Isle of Patmos for his testimony about the Word of God. That's why he's been sent away. Basically in prison, put in jail. He's been confined to this island of Patmos. That's their third pastor. 
So Ephesus is not an easy place to do church. If you wanted to buy things in Ephesus, if you were a Christian, folks may not want to, to buy things from you. They may not want to sell things to you. If you were a person who said that Christ is Lord and you were not going to say Caesar is Lord, folks might not, not want to do business with you. Socially, culturally, people may not want to hang out with you. Not sure I want to be around these people. Last pastor got beaten in the streets. One pastor got run out of town. The pastor now got sent off into exile. I'm not going to hang out. I might get sent off into exile. Socially, culturally, this would be a difficult place to do church. So Jesus is saying, you have patiently endured bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. He commends this church for that. I wonder, do we patiently endure? Oh my goodness, we have it so good, don't we? We just, yeah, we have churches on every corner. One of the things that we should be thankful for is that we can gather, we can worship freely. We're not gathering in secret. We, we don't face physical violence for being Christians. Not in the culture in which we live. Thank you, Lord, that we have it easier than these folks had. Culturally, socially, because we live in the, the buckle of the Bible belt. It's not bad to say you're a Christian. In fact, some, I saw a, a truck, a utility truck. It was a, a, a plumber and an electrician. They had a little fish on their, their van, their service van. Because in Alabama, if you say you're a Christian, that actually helps your business rather than hurting it. People who run for office tell what church they're a member of because that helps them get more votes rather than hurts them politically. We live and should be thankful that we live in the place that we do. What kind of things do we have to endure? Because we face much less than what this church, I'm almost ashamed to say it, but you felt it before, right? You go into the coffee shop, there are people there, you've got a few minutes and you think, do I really want to get out this big black Bible and read it here from everybody that might think that I'm weird or that I think that I'm holy or something? I'll just read my Bible on my phone because everybody's looking up their phone. Or praying in public. I remember uh, I was in seminary and there was this guy named Russell. He was going back to China to serve there. He had become a Christian. He was in seminary with me. Here's a guy who could get killed or in prison for his faith. I saw him in the dealership. We were both getting our car service. And he said, hey, Scott, will you pray for me? As I'm going back to China, will you pray for me? And I'm like, you know how you do. It's like, yeah, I'll pray for you. I'm going to pray about that. I'll do that. But Russell meant, no, I want you to pray for me right now. Right here in the dealership. Right? And I'm like, yes, because there are other people here. They're looking, and I'm this guy, and I'm praying for this Chinese guy. Oh, my, the impression that we face, that I'm worried that somebody will think I'm a... Here's a man risking his life to go back to China as, as a Christian, and I'm worried about praying for him in, in the dealership for my oil's being changed. God, forgive us for our slowness to enjoy the freedoms that we have here. We're afraid to share our faith with folks because they might think we're weird. Or we're funny. 
Now, we need to be wise as we share our faith. We need to be wise about how we use our big black Bible in the coffee shop. But we should also be willing to patiently endure hardship. That we should patiently endure and bear up for the sake of Christ without growing weary. One of those places that we may need to do that or may be called to do that in our culture is this third thing that Jesus praises the church for. So when I see something here is that Jesus praises this church's standing for truth. Do you see it there in verse 2? He says that, that he knows how they cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who, are, who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. Jesus says, I'm going to praise you as a church because you have been standing for the truth. I think that's going to get harder and harder to do, even in the culture that we live in. You know, people admire you for being a Christian, and if you go to church, that's great for you, and a lot of folks don't think weird of you about that. But if we begin to say that Jesus is the only way to go to heaven, which is what Jesus says, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. When we begin to say that, people begin to get uncomfortable with us. But how cruel is it of us if we don't tell people about the only way of salvation and the only way to get to heaven? Standing for truth in our culture can be difficult. <clears throat> there are other things that as Bible-believing people, we have begun to be out of step with the culture. If you watch TV, sitcoms, even the commercials that we watch... Marriage has come to look very different in our culture, and we can face some hardship if we begin to say what the Bible says, that we didn't invent marriage, and so we don't get to define marriage, and that the God who invented marriage says that marriage is between one man and one woman, we can face some hardship for saying that, or we're certainly out of step with the sexual ethic that we have. If we begin to say that we think sex is only appropriate between one man and one woman within the context of a marriage, we're out of step with our culture. And we can face hardship for that. I think perhaps the biggest thing that our culture needs to hear from us now, perhaps it'll come up at the Thanksgiving table as you dying with people this week. We live in a culture where we are beginning to define one another primarily by our race or our class or our gender or our sexual preferences. It's the trend in our culture. And our culture needs Christians to stand up and say, what primarily defines us as human beings is not the color of our skin or the culture that we prefer. That what primarily defines us as human beings is not how much money we have in our bank account. That what primarily defines us as human beings it's not what political party we belong to or what gender we choose or what our sexual preferences might be. 
Our culture really needs Christians to stand up and say what primarily defines us as human beings is that we are all made in the image of God. And that as image bearers, we are all entitled to great honor and respect and dignity and have significance because we are all made in the image of God. And we need to be willing to say that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, that we have all sinned and we've all been sinned against in ways that leave us wounded, broken, not the people that we were first designed to be. And we need to be willing to say that the greatest need of any person on the earth, of any human being, is the grace of God extended to us through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we learned back in Luke 10, remember Jesus said, what What do we leave with? But first, peace. And we should say, as people made in the image of God, we long for peace. We long for shalom. We long for that wholeness. That safety, that security, that soundness of being restored to a right relationship with our Creator and that only He alone can give. Jesus wants this church to work hard and to patiently endure and to stand for truth. This church was doing that, and Jesus praises them for it. Now, as great as this church was, Jesus had a problem with this church. You see it there, don't you? In verse 4, the problem Jesus had with this church at Ephesus. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned your first love, Jesus said. Now, what's Jesus saying here? He said, look, you're doing a lot of good stuff. You're working hard. You're patiently enduring. You're standing for truth. But you've lost your first love. These folks were doing all the right things. All these good things they were doing. But they neglected their relationship with Jesus. That's the first love he's talking about. He's saying, you're neglecting me. You're neglecting your relationship with me. Evidently to Jesus, a church can do all the right things. And if we forget our relationship with him, it's all for naught. It's a deal breaker. Look in verse 5. Look at what he says. He says in verse 5, if not, you know, repent, do the things you did at first. If not, I will come you and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. He's saying right now you're a lampstand, you're a light to the culture, separate from the light with me, from a relationship with me, I'll remove the lesson. You won't be alive in this culture. Either they'll cease to exist as a church or they'll cease to have any sort of effectiveness and seeing people come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. They've abandoned the love they had for him at first. Think about the implications of that. You know, sometimes we hear that we think, gosh, I don't love God enough. We've been talking about it all through the service that the, the psalmist struggled with that. I don't desire God like to do your panty for water. We can go there really quickly. But before we go there, think of this. Hear what this is saying. 
God in his word is saying to you this morning that the creator of the universe, the one who sustains all things, wants a relationship with you. That's amazing. That's an incredible thought. That he knows us, that he wants relationship with us. And it's a it's it, it's it's a theme throughout the scripture, beginning in the Garden of Eden, where the man and the woman walk with God in the coolness of the day. And that relationship is ruptured by their rebellion and their rebelling against him, and God still calls his people his wayward wife. Read Jeremiah 2, read the whole book of Hosea. In the New Testament, you see as well, we read these passages thinking they're about marriage, and certainly Ephesians 5 helps us to think about marriage, but the Apostle Paul, they miss that, says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That marriage is a picture of the relationship that God wants to have with us. Now, let's let me just be honest. Guys, we struggle with this, Right? If Jesus is the groom and I'm the bride, like I'm married to Jesus, and this is like weird for me, right? It's an image. He's saying the closeness and the intimacy that you experience only in marriage. And when I say intimacy, men, you think sex, and there are two different things. That's another sermon another day. The closeness that you have with another human being in marriage, that's the kind of relationship Jesus wants with you. If the image is hard for you, guess what? There are others in the scripture. Read those. Shepherd and sheep. Jesus said, you know, the psalm says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, John 10. We don't really relate to shepherd and sheep very well in this culture either, do we? The shepherd was always with the sheep. The shepherd took them to places where they could find food and water. They couldn't survive without the shepherd. He protected them from predators. That's the kind of relationship God wants to have with you, that you're together all the time, that he provides you <laughs> the things that you need, that you look to him for provision, that without him we would wander off. We still wander when he's with us. But he protects us from those who would do us Harm, parent and child relationship. If that was easier for you, if you have kids and you can imagine that, Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, teaches us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, and people lost their mind that he called God his Father. And he invites us into that relationship to have that kind of relationship with God. That he's not just a a judge who pardons us from our crimes, but a father who adopts us into his household, and that we are people who have an inheritance, who have brothers and sisters, who have an elder brother, Jesus, as a part of this family. There is image after image, but the point is all the same. God wants a relationship with us. Now, if you ever had that kind of relationship with God, perhaps you remember the love that you had for him at the first, when you first became a Christian, when you first had a relationship with God. When you saw your sin and thought, oh my gosh, I've been this way my entire life. 
And God in his grace and his mercy has pursued me and adopted me as his child. And now I'm a child of the king. You were so grateful. You were so excited. You were so bold. Maybe you felt that way after a conference. Maybe after a retreat in the mountains. Maybe after going to the beach for the summer, some kind of summer beach project. Maybe you felt that way before. But the text teaches us that that love fades. From our experience, we know it happens in marriages, it happens in friendships, and this shows us that it happens in the life of a disciple. The church in Ephesus had abandoned the love they had for Jesus to birth that admiration, that closeness of relationship was gone. My mentor, Brian Chapman, his book, Holiness by Grace, tells the story, I've heard him tell it, several times about the young mom who took her children to the park to break the monotony of home children homebound for the summer. And so she takes them to the park and she watched her kids run to the playground and equipment as another car drove to the parking lot. The new car who drove up ground to a quick stop and this young attractive woman with a beaming smile leaps out of the driver's seat and virtually skipped to a secluded picnic table near an adjoining lake. The young mother's imagination began to race. Who could this attractive young woman be meeting in a secluded spot with so much enthusiasm? Was this a long-awaited and carefully planned rendezvous with an over-busy husband, a lunch date with a best friend, or a tryst between secret lovers? She determined to stay on the lookout for whoever got out of the next car that came into the parking lot. No one came immediately. The mother soon grew preoccupied with their children and forgot to watch for whomever the young woman was meeting. When she finally did glance at the secluded woman, what the mother saw made her own heart hurt. The attractive woman was reading a Bible. The person she had left from the car to meet with such enthusiasm was the Lord. The mother recognized with pain that penetrated her spirit that she no longer had that same enthusiasm. Once the excitement of her relationship with the Lord overwhelmed her, once the joy of her salvation burned warm and bright, but the fervor was gone, faith had become dreary duty, God had become a tax frowning bystander. Something had happened over the years of her walk with the Lord. She did not know what it was, but she did know she was not now the kind of person who would skip to meet him. We feel that way, don't we? We can relate to this woman. We know worship should be important and we want to make it a priority. When we come here, we're bored. We learn more and more about God, and it seems like, if we're honest, we care less and less. We can get to that point that we know we should be doing more for the kingdom, but working for God just becomes drudgery. God seems far away. Our heart is cold. Is there a way out? Is there a solution? Look at this third point of the sermon, the plan Jesus has in this church in Ephesus. How do we have our love for him revived? Look at verse 5. Jesus tells them, remember, therefore, 
from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The first thing Jesus says to do is remember. We've been doing that a lot this morning. We see the psalmist do that. Remember, there was a time that you did have a really great relationship with God. And then just be honest about the fact that that's not where you are right now. That once you were here, now you're here in a different place. And if you're totally honest, maybe you've never had a relationship like that with God. Maybe you haven't fallen from a great height because you've never had that relationship with him. How do we start? How do we revive a relationship that we've had with him in the past? The key is to remember his love for us. And when we see his great love for us and what he has done for us, then it's natural for us to love him back. What does 1 John 4 say? We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Remember the height from which you fall and remember his love for you. Second, Jesus says to repent. Repent's a church word. Nobody ever uses that word except in church, right? I used to tell my kids I would take a stuff down and just says, repent just means you're going in one direction. If you turn and go in the other direction, that's all repent means. For my driver's side, it's just a U-turn. Right? We've all done it. We're going, in, we're going the wrong way. We're going to turn around and go back the other way. That's all repentance is. It's a U-turn. It means that we change our direction. Jesus is calling us to change our focus from whatever it is that has, has been on our hearts and our minds and to change to a focus on our relationship with him. It might be that we have to change our schedule so that we have more time with him. It might be we need to change our commitments because we're too caught up in other things. It means we have to change some old habits and develop some new habits repentance may look like. We remember, we repent, and then Jesus doesn't use this word. He just says, do the things you did at first. Because I want to keep that RE, right? Remember, repent. How about resume the things you did before? Now, he's talking to people who had a relationship with Jesus and are now have lost their first love. So when he's saying, do the things you did before, he's not talking to people who have never had a relationship. He say, look, go back and do the things you did when you did have a good relationship with God. And isn't that what we do with any relationship? I mean, if you take a counselor class, one of the things they'll tell you to do is, you know, get the married couple to tell about when they first fell in love. Get them to tell about why it is that they did get married. And as they begin to think, oh, yeah, that's why we liked each other. That's why we got married. And that helps us when we resume the things that we did before. That's what Jesus is calling us to do, to go back and do the things we did before. You remember when we made time for one another, when we made plans to spend time together, when we made an effort, when we made more out of what the other wanted than making out of what we want. When we made an effort to listen. We made an effort to share our thoughts and our dreams and our fears. Jesus is calling you 
that kind of relationship. You hear the Savior calling this morning. He's wooing us to a deeper love and a deeper affection. Don't you long for that peace, that, that wholeness, that safety that's found only in Him? If so, will you take the time to pursue it? Will you take the time to pursue Him? Will you weep for those who don't know Jesus? Will you speak freely about Jesus? When you realize you can't do it on your own without Jesus? Just like this church at Ephesus, our church has some hard work to do. And in this culture, we'll have some things to endure. We do have some tough stands we must take for the truth. But first, above all else, we have a relationship to nurture, to cultivate. Because without Jesus in the center of all that we do, we accomplish nothing of eternal value, no matter how hard we work. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you call us to yourself, that you want a relationship with us. I pray that that would break our hearts. I pray that we would be astounded that you would want a relationship with us. And that you would help us to remember. That you would help us to repent. That you would help us to resume the things we did when we were closer to you. For those who have never had that kind of relationship, I pray that you would lead them into that, that you would even use Redeemer Church and our leadership here to help them find We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy that you desire a relationship with us. Please help us to make it first above all. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.